Nocturnal Journal on a Saturday night, and thanks for hanging around. In the next hour, we're going to pay tribute to the Green uh, City Market. We're also going to talk about Bernie's Book Bank. But thanks for hanging on. Uh, we're going to talk about a lot of people are talking about the moon, but we're going to talk about Woodstock and our friends uh, Canned Heat. And on the phone, we have Fido de la Para. How are you? Okay, happy to be here. Well, thanks. Uh, Thanks for joining us, and thanks for waiting. This is a big treat for me, because I, I grew up on a lot of your music. Um, and you're going to be, right, I'm going to go right off the bat, you're going to be at Heroes of Woodstock with Big Brother and the Holding Company. That's tomorrow, a little matinee, 5 o'clock, at the Arcata Theater, 105 East Main Street in uh, downtown St. Charles. I'm really looking forward to the show. So what's, what's new with Canteen? You're the senior member. You're probably the last surviving guy, right? Well, Larry Taylor is with us, and he's also an original member. Okay. Larry Taylor, the mole. Oh, the mole. And what the was your mole. nickname? You all had nicknames. Yes, that was part of the thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, what, and what was your nickname? Well, Fido is already a nickname. Okay. Fido is short for Adolfo, which is my real name. Okay. And where are you from originally? I'm from Mexico City. Oh, And so how'd you join the band? About 67, right? In 1967, yeah, towards the end of the year. And how'd you I, find I them? You were in another in this band. Country around '68. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, in '66. And uh, I was lucky enough, and I guess the kind of music that I was already familiar with is just what those guys were looking for, you know. And uh, we met, and we clicked right in, and had a nice audition, a nice rehearsal, and they asked me if I wanted to join the band. And I answer, I was born to play with canned heat. <laughs> I mean, were you... They like that sense of commitment. Well, yeah. Uh, now, these guys, um, Bob Hyde and Alan Wilson, who both passed away in, in dramatic fashion, but um, they really were seeped in blues and a lot of Chicago blues. Oh, yeah, what was they your were back experts not only of Chicago blues, they were experts in country blues and in jazz. Yeah. You know, musicologists and experts, you know, in music, record collectors. Uh, this kind of music was their life. And what was your... Did you have a background in blues? What type of music were you playing? Well, I mean, I actually grew up in Mexico City from a middle-class family. My father really loved American music and American culture. And he used to take me to watch movies about American musicians. He always liked the swing and the jazz era. And that's where, how I started into that kind of music. You know, he would take me to see movies like the Benny Goodman story or the Glenn Miller story, you know. Uh, some great movies that were made in the late 50s and early 60s. And uh, that, that started me going... Then, finally, Bill Haley and the Comets came to Mexico for the first time. I guess it was in 1959, 1958. And my dad took me to see them. And I was totally captivated with that kind of music. It was something brand new. You know, you have to understand that rock and roll didn't exist before that. Uh -huh. And we were like the first generation that understood and appreciated 
that kind of music, and it was just a wonderful experience, you know, to hear people like, like Bill Haley and the Comets live playing that new music that came from the north. <laughs> yeah. um, can't heat. I mean, you were at Woodstock. What do you? Yes. What, what are your memories of Woodstock? Well, I pretty much remember everything because I didn't take the brown acid. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you remember. Yeah. Uh, the, the MC t- warning all the audience, please stay away from the brown acid. Yeah, yeah. The only problem is that by the time he gave that announcement, it was a little too late. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people already had taken the brown acid, <laughs> you know. <laughs> But anyway, I was one of the one of the ones that didn't, and uh, I've had a good memory. Thank God, my genes are happening still. Did I enjoy good health, and I have a good memory. And uh, not only that, but I wrote a book called "Living the Blues." Yeah, I want to. And I I talk about my experience in Woodstock there on the on the first chapter because that is the question I've been asked most from everybody and I figure I might as well write a book and put a whole chapter on my experience my personal experience on Woodstock from the moment I woke up until the moment I collapsed around midnight well um, we got to take a break already for the news but one quick question before we break did Bloomfield play with you guys at Woodstock Michael Bloomfield no but he did play with us a week before a week before a week before he sat in with us and that's when Harvey Mandel joined the band, too. Chicago guy, yeah, Harvey yes, Mandel. Yes, both of them Chicago guys and both highly respected uh, guitar players. Okay, well, um, I'm going to ask you to hang on for a little bit after the news. We're going to talk about Woodstock this year. I know you guys are going to be in the neighborhood. And then uh, I want to talk about some of the history of the band and uh, Alan Wilson's great love of the blues and uh, stuff you're doing today. So um, don't go away on Nocturnal Journal and Can't Eat on WGN. We will stand every boy, every girl, Welcome back to Nocturnal Journey. Yeah. <laughs> Wilbert Harrison cover. I tell you, I listened to all this stuff. I was listening to historical figures today and, and uh, prepping for the interview. I, I don't know if we'll have time to get to all my questions, but my friends, uh, Canned Heat, and that's uh, Fido de la Parra on drums. And um, what can people expect tomorrow? Heroes of Woodstock, Sunday, July 21st at 5 p.m., Arcata <laughs> Theater. How many in St. Charles? How many people are in the band? Four. Four. Okay. Just the quartet. Okay. And uh, you cover hits, new stuff? What? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You you will hear all the canned heat hits. And then a little, a few things that we just play, you know, to educate a little bit, too. Uh-huh. First, of course, we play the hit records so people can identify with us and, and you know, feel part of it. And, and then we play some stuff that... Uh, we are some some new stuff and stuff that is not quite as known, but it is very good. Yeah. From different records, I mean, we have so many CDs and so many records, you know. But we usually uh, we usually make a mix of of songs that are known and songs that are not so known. But it usually works out really good, and people love it, and they have a great time. Uh, Canned Heat, we were talking before the show. Ernie, our engineer, says it sounds like a 1970s uh, jail film, but tell the listeners where the name came from for the band. Oh, the Canned Heat. Yeah. Well, during, during Provision, uh, 
the, the poor people in the South, uh, blacks or whites, used to buy sterno, which is the, you know that stuff they use in the cans to keep food warm in the hotels and the restaurants. The little sterno cans that are made of solid alcohol. That is real canned heat. So what they used to do during provision, they used to squeeze that solid alcohol through a handkerchief or a sock and mix it with Orange Crush or Coca-Cola and drink it. And, of course, they will catch a buzz. But <laughs> that was a very dangerous thing to do because it will make you blind or actually kill you. It was. It is it is uh, solid alcohol, and it is industrial alcohol. It is not to be drank. So canned heat was really the drink of the desperate. Yeah, yeah, boy. Um, historical figures, I was talking about that. Was that the first album after Alan passed away? Alan died at age 27. Well, actually, the, the album, the first album that came out after Alan passed away was Hooker and Heat. Okay, John Lee Hooker. That's the last album that features Alan there, and, you know, he's doing a great job in the harmonica and all that. But Alan didn't get to see the, the final product. We mixed it already after his, uh, after his death. Talk a little about Alan. I mean, uh, there's probably a generation who's maybe not that familiar with him. He died a long time ago. But, I mean, he worked with John Fahey on uh, Charlie Patton Thesis. At on UCLA. Charlie Patton's book, yes, yeah. on the thesis. That's how John Fahey flew Alan from Boston to Los Angeles to help him out with a book he was writing about Charlie Patton. Mm -hmm. Alan was, a, as I said earlier, an expert and a musicologist. And he was friends with John Fahey, and he he had the understanding of Charlie Patton's music to be able to put it in paper and make it understandable for people that were reading that book. You know, because uh, Charlie Patton's music is not really that simple. You know, it's a, it's a very original blues, but it has uh, different measurements and different nuisance. So Alan was the, the perfect person for John to get together with and write that book about Charlie Patton. And that's how, that's, uh, in that visit is when he met Bob Hyde, Bob Hyde the Bear. He, the was bear. Working in a, he was working in a record store, and, and that's how they met. They were both record collectors and blues lovers, and that's how they got together. And eventually, they originated the idea of making a band called Canned Heat. The, the original Canned Heat was really just a, a jock band, as they called it, yeah. from, the, from the 20s, you know, with a big bottle and the kazoo and all those uh, the different uh, acoustic instruments, you know. It was fun, but it was not a professional band. As time went on, they decided to become more and more professional, and that's when they hired Henry Vestine and Larry Taylor and myself, which we were more stage people, you know, we were already professional musicians. Um, boy, there's debate about Alan's death. Was it a, a, a barbiturates by accident or was it a suicide? Well, you know, I, it, there are several theories about that. Uh -huh. I, I wish you would read my book about it because I, I explain uh, very clearly how it happened and the versions that we have from our manager, Skip Taylor, who is the first person that found Alan's body, and then from the reports from the police, etc. The main issue is that Alan already was uh, depressed. He was not feeling very good. He was 
one of the first environmentalists I ever met, and he was very worried about the state of the earth and what we're doing to it. And that was happening 40, 50 years ago. Imagine what Alec will say now. Yeah. <laughs> hey, <laughs> you know, with the global warming and all that stuff, you know. Yeah, you're right. There's a lot of things I was going to ask you about the way things are now. Um, we actually have a caller here. Dave wants to know who the lead vocals were in Let's Work Together. That's Bob. Bob that's Hyde, Bob the bear. Yeah, yeah, the bear. Bob Hyde, the bear, does the lead vocals. That's, that's his only hit song on the band. The other two hits going up the country and on the road again were sang by Alan. And is Dr. John on piano? On, uh, Dr. John features on piano on many of our songs, many more yeah. songs. He features on three or four of our LPs. In uh, Christmas Blues, he features in, in the Scat. He plays in, in the first record, too, the Owl song, uh, the Slow Blues. Uh, a lot of stuff with, with Dr. John. Every time we needed a piano player, we will call Dr. John. But there, there is a couple of songs where we used other piano players, too, like uh, Joe Sample, for example. But, uh, but Mac Rabinak was one of our favorites. I was, like I said, uh, all the snap, crackle, pops of the vinyl I never got rid of. Uh, Rockin' with the King, that's, that's maybe a deep cut, but you did that with Little Richard, right? That was great, because, you know, we always admire Little Richard. If you hear the early Little Richard before he became a, a rock and roll star, he was pretty much a blues singer himself. And some of the early records show it, you know. And uh, so we always loved Little Richard, and it was the, our chance to actually make a record with him. And it was a very fun session. It was uh, very live, and, uh, and we had a great time singing about the king of rock and roll. At the time, he was always appearing on TV and calling himself the king of rock and roll and telling everybody to shut up. You remember, yeah. shut up, <laughs> yeah. I'm the king of rock and roll. So we decided to do that song in his honor and have him play with us. Yeah. So it, it was a wonderful experience. Are you, uh, boy, uh, the band is uh, notorious for a lot of wild living and, and a lot of strange passing aways and stuff. Are you surprised you're still with us? I'm surprised that I'm still alive. Yeah, right. <laughs> but then, then in many ways, I didn't abuse myself and I didn't do a lot of the crazy, silly stuff the other guys did. And I, you know, I didn't indulge in hard drugs. Uh, very little, you know, just the, the, just a little pot now and then, and, and that's the way I kept going. And never drank too much, never smoked too much. I tried to keep myself in shape, you know, do some yoga. And also the fact of playing drums and playing on the stage can be a very healthy uh, experience, you know. Uh, performing on the stage can be an aerobic exercise. And... Uh, Unfortunately, many performers just make a destructive thing by drinking too much or doing hard drugs and all that and destroying themselves. Because actually performing, as I said earlier, is a great exercise and a way to stay fit and stay alive. We got a couple minutes left. I want to I want to wrap it up with how people can find your book. Is there? A, I'm going to be at the well, show. Well, you can yeah. find it in Amazon, but it's going to be a lot a lot more expensive in Amazon. So please go to our website, www.canheatmusic.com. By the way, I just signed a deal with Mike Judge. You know the famous oh, yeah. uh, producer, film film director. Yeah. 
I just signed a deal with him, and he's going to be making a movie out of my book. Is he really? Yeah, Mike well, Judge. What a perfect person to make a movie about a crazy band like Kane. Will it be like the animation stuff he did with the country music uh, No, stuff? no. I asked him if he wanted to do an animation thing like the Tales from the Tour Boss. Yeah, right. But, but uh, he said no. He wants to make a future film. I mean, I can't. I mean, I'm a big rock and roll fan. I can't think of anybody with a more colorful history than Canned Heat. Really, well, you, you, you guys make the, the Stones or, look uh, like you the more. Book or you see the movie that Mike Judge makes, and then you really know it. <laughs> and uh, last thing, and then we'll let you go. You are going to be at. Uh, I know you're not going to be this one Woodstock that fell apart, but I was talking to your manager today. You're going to be at the one in Marion, Iowa. Yes, we're Woodstock. doing all the Woodstocks there are, except the original 50th that was supposed to happen, but I guess they they got disorganized, then they lost their permits, then I believe they had way too many acts, they maybe got a little bit greedy and ambitious, and they had 90 acts, and they were expecting too many people, and many of those cities, including Long Island and New York, they just didn't want, you know, 100,000 people in their towns. Uh, you don't have to provide a bathroom and food and water and all that stuff, uh, security, all that. It, it, it looks like a nightmare to them, you know, and, and, and that's why the, uh, Michael Lang couldn't, uh, couldn't get the permits. And there were some other problems there. I'm not very familiar with the details, but uh, I'm disappointed that the big one didn't happen. But there are several other smaller well, events, yeah. like the one tomorrow, and we are gonna, we're going to rock. Okay. Um, Ro, you've never heard me so excited about a guest, have you? In the I time haven't, actually. <laughs> I mean, I'm such a fan of the band. You're such a great interview, and I'm excited about the Mike Judge thing. That's I can hardly wait yeah, for that. Yeah, that's, I wanted to mention that because, yeah. you know, I admire Mike, too, and my book has been out since 1997. It's a self-published book, but it's been translated several languages, and it has sold quite well just in my website. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, I, a, a year ago, I received this phone call from Mike, and, and he tells me who he is, and I go, oh my God, I admire you, I love Beavis and Butthead and all that, and he says, I read your book and I love it, and I want to sign you, and that's where the whole thing started. Okay, my friend, this has been great, Adolfo de la Parra from Canned Heat, and we're going to see you tomorrow, I'm going to come out for the show. Great, and that we'll is it for the you. Arcata Theater, uh, Sunday at 5 o'clock, 105 East Main Street, uh, St. Charles, Illinois. So thanks for joining us tonight. Okay, we'll see you out there, Dave. Come okay. have a beer with us. Okay, I will. Thanks. Bye-bye. All right. And we'll be back with more after this on WGN. Welcome back, Nocturnal uh, Journal. Casey, are you a, a Canned Heat fan? <laughs> I can't uh, say I've got to calm down from that interview. Yeah. That's, well, that's a long, that's old, that's old hippie music. But anyway, KCA Barb Connect, Director of Volunteer uh, Services at Bernie's Book Bank. Thanks for joining us and thanks for being patient with our, our late Sox game and stuff. Not a problem. Glad to be here. So tell me about, I was, at, I was telling you, I was at Printer's Row and I went over to a booth and I see these guys from, I actually bought a jersey because you had these really nice hoodies actually of uh, the, the Chicago flag and mm -hmm. Bernie's Book Bank. So talk about what uh, Bernie's Book Bank is. Sure. So we are a nonprofit and basically our mission is to get books into the hands of children who need them. So there's a a big problem in Chicagoland and, and all over our country where 
children don't have equal access to books that are theirs to keep that are reading level appropriate. So what we do is we collect books from the community, we make sure that they're age appropriate and high quality, and then we send them out to the kids who need them. Uh, 300,000 at-risk children? That's that was, right. Mm-hmm. And how do you define, t- t- I guess, uh, talk about how the process works. What? How, how do you define at at-risk children and what type of books do they get? So take it a step-by-step thing. Sure, absolutely. So we determine need by school districts who receive Title I funding primarily, and then we also distribute through WIC centers, so women, infant, children centers when they go in for their annual checkups. So we're, we're getting them through the school districts primarily, and, and what we do is we collect books. They go through several different sort processes in our processing center, which is located in Lake Bluff, um, but we serve all of Chicagoland. And, and what we do is we look at the books, we make sure that they are really for a child who's between the ages of birth and 12. Birth and 12, right. And then we make sure that they're high quality, they're not what we call overloved or in, in bad condition. Um, and then they really get looked at and, you know, is this a book for a preschool to first grader, a second or a third grader, all the way up through sixth grade. And kids are into the, I mean, uh, the physical aspect of the book as opposed to devices and stuff like that. I mean, are are physical books still on their radar? Yes. I guess it depends on the age group. I don't know. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're not giving your kindergartner a tablet, really. I mean, Uh maybe to learn how to read now. But these children, they need to have a physical book. It's really important. And studies show that you learn how to read better when you're actually holding, holding a book. What kind of books resonate with them? I, I saw my notes. Uh, you, you're a fan of the Harry Potter oh, series. Oh, yes. Yes, <laughs> yeah. that's right. Why, why do you like Harry Potter? <laughs> oh, it's just, it's such a perfect set of books for me. I think I read them right at the right age, and it really kind of triggered my love of reading on into middle school, where I think it's about hard to, to get somebody to maybe want to read those fun books these days. Um, but the kids love it all. I mean, I've seen these amazing thank you notes specifically about Diary of a Wimpy Kid. The children yeah. love those. Yeah. yeah, my nephew, I remember when he was gone, what, I don't have kids, but what age group does that resonate with? Uh, That's about fourth and fifth fourth grade. Fourth and grade, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I remember he, he, he liked that book a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, so who is Bernie? I, when I bought the, jersey, uh, the, uh, the hoodie, I was wondering, so I don't know, who's Bernie? Sure, yeah, Bernie is our founder, Brian's father. So Bernie was a lot like the children we serve. He was the children of immigrants, coal miners, um, and he didn't have a lot of material wealth growing up. And so what he did have access to was books, though, and, and he was famous for saying he read his way to a better life. He ended up actually getting a PhD in reading education. Um, and when he passed away, our founder, Brian, was working as a golf professional. And he really took a step back and was listening to all these wonderful things people were saying about his father and how they inspired or how he inspired them to learn and continue their education and search for this better life and so brian decided to work first as a reading paraprofessional in the school districts in the northern suburbs and then thought you know i can really affect more children if i take one step back and really focus on book ownership throughout the city and bernie so bernie was a local guy bernie is from the east coast east coast Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But Brian moved to My, Chicago. Brian moved land. to the Chicago area. Yes. And it started in 2009. The That's numbers right. I saw 2009, you distributed over 12.7 million books. Since 2009, we've actually now have updated numbers. We're just over 15 million books in 10 years. Wow. Wow. Thank you. So yeah. that's, that's really amazing. Um, so you, you're in charge of volunteers. So 
talk about some of the things volunteers do. We could point to a couple dates. Uh, August 26th to 30th, you're doing the Macy's thing. That's right. But talk about what volunteers mean to you and the role volunteers play in your organization. Sure, sure. So we host thousands of volunteers a year. We could not distribute the over 3 million books that we distribute yearly um, without them. We count on them to do everything from bring in books when they come to volunteer to sorting through them, doing those processes that I was talking about earlier, you know, really looking at the age range, the condition, the level, and then actually packaging them up and getting them ready for distribution. Um, And it's, I love my job because I get to work with people who are truly passionate about our mission every single day, even outside of our organization. So it's really exciting and, and you never forget the wonderful thing that we're working on when you get to talk to these people every day. August 26th to 30th, Macy's on State Street. That's right, yes. We're very excited to be hosting a pop-up volunteer location at the Macy's on State Street. We're going to have three sessions a day that week, um, and we'd, we'd love to see our local city people come out and support. And they will be sorting, stickering, and bagging. I'm just reading off my notes. Right, yeah, yeah, talk about what they will be sure. doing. Yeah, so we're basically And what time should they be up. there? And yeah. Yeah, well, if they want to sign up for a session, they can contact me through our website, which is berniesbookbank.org. Um, and basically, we're setting up a mini processing center. So it'll be all the same jobs that are available at our permanent Lake Bluff location, um, just in kind of a, a mini packaging up at the State Street location. So I like you know the way my mind works. So you're all you're all there at Macy's on State Street, mm-hmm. and you get all the books. How many books would you expect will be there? Oh, uh, we'll probably go through a couple dozen thousand. Yeah, at, really in those in those mm-hmm. four days. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they're all there. Then what happens? Do they go to the uh, the processing center? Yes, yeah, so we will uh, we'll bring them in. They'll do the processing up in the narcissist room at Macy's, and then the the books will come back to our Lake Bluff location and get ready to be distributed during the school year. Okay, um, you can hang around a little bit since we're yeah. running a little late, and I want to talk about how people can hook up with the organization and, and some things for the future. Sounds great. Okay, so don't go away on Nocturnal Journal on WGN. Oh, I wonder, wonder, wonder who wrote the book Casey, you like my little book songs there? I love it, yeah. Pretty clever, you know? Casey Barbconnect, Director of Volunteer Services at Bernie's Book Bank. What a great idea. Um, I was writing on some of my notes there during the break. I was trying to envision, tell the listeners what it's like when, and every kid is different, but when a kid first gets a book, I mean, maybe some kids have never seen a book, maybe kids have never had a book given to them. Uh, give us a visual picture of what it's like when a kid gets one of your books. Sure, sure. It's very exciting, especially when it's clearly children who had never had books of their own. I had a kid come up to me once and said, I get to keep this? Yeah. Like, Absolutely, these are for you. And they're just, they're so grateful. They're so excited. We get hundreds of thank you notes in the mail. And it's just, it's so exciting to read from these children that didn't have the opportunity before and now can picture themselves going and doing and being things that they couldn't imagine before. I bet there's um, are there different themes that they respond to. We talked about Harry Potter, but I'm I'm sure 
within the next year, there's going to be tons of alligator books <laughs> for kids. <laughs> but uh, you know, that story doesn't go away. But um, are there certain themes they respond to? It really depends on the kid. You know, we got one letter once from a child who had low MAP scores, which is that standardized testing in Illinois schools. And they said, I traded all my books so that I had nonfiction books, and I'm so excited to work on my MAP scores. And then there are... The other kids who go and and they want the Diary of the Wimpy Kid or a superhero book or princesses, you know, yeah, it's, right. it's all very exciting. But we definitely see some themes with the, the popular ones. Yeah. yeah. Um, talk about your background. How'd you get involved in the organization? Sure. So I'm from Lake County originally, which is where we're located. Um, I went away to school. I studied human rights. And, oh, you did? Yeah. And then when I where, came- Where'd you, where'd you do that The at? University of Iowa. Oh, really? Yeah. 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 Big Hawkeye fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, So when I came back to Illinois, I I wanted to do something that mattered. And books have played a huge role in my life. It was always something that I was doing, reading all the time, um, trading with my friends, trying to start book clubs, things like that. And so it really seemed like the perfect marriage of you know, something that I loved, literacy, and then also making a difference in our community. Were there books around the house? I mean, what did your folks do? Were they... Oh, yes. My mother is a teacher. Yeah. And yeah, my dad was involved in education for a while as well. It runs in our family for sure. Um, there were always books around the house. I was always around people who were reading. And, and that is a huge predictor of success later in life. So we mm. want to make sure that the children we serve are seeing that and being exposed to that as well. Did you play sports? I did. I played lacrosse. Yeah. You're tall. <laughs> I am very tall. How tall yeah. are you? Six one. Yeah, you're <laughs> It takes people by surprise. Yeah. Rose t- Rose tall too, right? Ro, yes, you ran track. Society, let's get it. <laughs> Heck yeah. Ro, you ran track, right? I did. I yeah. ran her. Yeah. Yeah. And that was what, uh, South Suburbs, right? Yep, South Suburbs, Sunny Park. All wow. right. Yeah. I- I'm like the smallest guy on the show. <laughs> Crazy. Um, so talk about some of the other, uh, before we wrap it up, talk about some of the other, you guys have a lot of clever uh, volunteer options. Football Fridays. Uh, now, maybe the next one's not till August 30th, but what happens at that? That's right. Sure. So we're very excited to partner with the Chicago Bears um, for the NFL's 100th anniversary they're trying to serve 100 million minutes of fan volunteer time and so we're partnering with the chicago bears to help them up their hours we've got to beat the packers in volunteer minutes for sure um so when people come in every once in a while we'll get a visit visit from stanley the bear yes it's very exciting the kids love it (laughs) i actually the grown men love it too for sure um but we encourage people to come in their bears gear hang out with us and then use the hashtag bears huddle for 100 okay two questions where does this happen That's at our Lake Bluff location. You can see all the dates on our website, berniesbookbank.org, and you can sign up directly from the calendar. And you say compete with the Packers. Did they do something like this? Well, all NFL teams are doing it. So they're all competing against each other, and they need their fans to come out and support. Now, do they all have different book bank? I mean, what do you mean? Oh, no, it's just volunteer time in general. Oh, volunteer time in general. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We're just, uh, we've got, you know, hundreds of volunteers that come in every month, so we're encouraging them to use the hashtag in our partnership with the Bears. And what is the 50-hour club? The 50-hour club is a wonderful group of dedicated people who have committed to serving at least 50 hours over the course of a 12-month period. Um, so there are you know, weekly volunteers. They come in all the time. Um, they get an exclusive T-shirt and then uh, milestone markers for every 50 hours that they serve. So do you go to bookstores a lot? Oh, I love bookstores. Do you bookstores. love bookstores? Yes. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What are you reading now? 
I am reading a book of essays right now called I Miss You When I Blink. It's very good so far. Now, yeah. what's that about? It's just about this woman's life. She was an author and, uh, you know, it's very interesting. Yeah. So it is. So give us a wrap up again, um, how people can volunteer. I guess the next really public thing is that at Macy's on, uh, on State Street. Right? Absolutely. Yep. That's a big thing. We also host three sessions a day, six days a week at our Lake Bluff location. Um, so if you're in the area or want to take a trip up to visit us, we would love to have you. You can sign up directly from our website. There's an online calendar there um, to get involved with the Macy's event, which is on the week of the 26th of August. You can contact me. All my information is on our website as well. And then if you've just got some children's books you're looking to get rid of, um, we have a lot of book drop partners throughout the state. You can go onto our website. There's a little oh, really? map. You can type in your zip code and it shows you the closest Are there some like in the city and stuff? Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah. so we're partnered with the Wintrust Banks. So oh, yeah, you can that's go right. to any I of those locations yeah. Yeah, and drop off books And there. how can people find those hoodies? Those are really sweet. Sure, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you can come to our location and pick one up. Um, if you want us to send a, you a picture, we can send it to you in the mail as well. We'll figure it out for you. <laughs> the leading provider of quality books for at risk children yeah. in the Chicagoland area. Sorry. What any type of books you you reject? I mean, what, what won't you take? Sure. So we don't distribute anything that's inappropriate for children who are 12 years old or younger. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll sort out all of the adult books. We also distribute through the public school system. So we don't do anything that has religious content. Um, no. And then we also don't do anything that you would need to buy extra material for. So those craft books and cookbooks and things like that, we want them to really be able to use it and not have to go buy other things if they don't have those resources. Okay, well, it's such a great idea. Thank so, you. Thanks for coming down. Of course. Thanks for having me. Casey Barb Connect, Director of Volunteer Services. I love, I love uh, Des Moines and uh, Iowa, Iowa City. Iowa City. Yeah. yeah, that's right. It's a great Director town. Director yeah. of Volunteer <laughs> Services. Uh, what's the bookstore there? Uh, Prairie Light. Prairie, that's right. Yeah, yeah Prairie Lights. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Director of Volunteer Services at Bernie's Book Bank. Uh, so thank you for coming down tonight. Thank you. Okay, I'll be back with more after this on WGN. Because I'm still in How about that? Here we are back on Nocturnal Journal, and here's our little tribute to the the Green City Market, kind of organized by my friend, Jackie. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are Pronounce you? Pronounce your last name again. Jeanette. Jeanette. Jackie Jeanette, and tell us who all you brought in with us. I have Melissa Flynn from the Green City Market, Yeah. Hi. and my friend Nick Nichols from Nichols Farm in Marengo. And Melissa, your executive director. Correct. Thanks for having us. Oh, thanks for coming in, and thanks for being patient with a little bit of late start. Thanks for coming in, Nick. Yeah, no problem. So... Where do you want to start, Jackie? I mean, talk about your history with, with the market. You joined in about 2011, but you and I go way back. Right, right. So, talk about what you do in Beloit. Yeah, so we met at my restaurant and store in Beloit in, I think, 2009. You and me. I met. Yeah, 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 and uh, did some And things. don't understate that. That's a great place. Yeah, so we have a store there and a restaurant. We also, in 2010, opened a preservation kitchen, so we make... Uh, quite a few bottles of hot sauce and jam and pickles and things like that there and it's a pretty cool place it's a, a big part of our community and really kind of a community center so um, we're pretty proud of it and then as a result of that we became uh, involved with the Green City Market in 2011. 
and have been going there since then. And you have a background. Talk about what you were doing in the Chicago area before you went up to okay, the light. So, yeah, that was a little bit different. Um, <laughs> in in Chicago, I was in the software industry. Right. Um, I, I worked for a software company here locally and uh, decided um, a few years before I actually left that I wanted to move out of my 20 by 20 foot garden and got 130 acres and decided to get started with a farm. So that's that's kind of how that started. I exited the city. So. It's a, Casey, have you ever been to Beloit? No. They're, they're in downtown Beloit. I mean, don't under, it's it's like in a former Woolworths, right? It's a big space. It is. It's a it's a total of ten thousand square feet. Yeah. 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 Big space. Yeah. So how do people, Melissa? How do people like, join the market? And I'm going to ask you a little of the history of the market. But so what? Ha- how does this happen? I mean, sure. Did, so every year we have farmers apply. You have to be third party certified, which means you're either growing or uh, USDA organic, certified naturally grown. Another certification then lets the shoppers know these people are growing sustainably and leaving the ground better than they found it. So we were thrilled to have Jackie join us, and she's brought other farmers in through the years. And we every year go through a process where we vet all the applications and bring people back in each and every year. And talk about, a little bit about the history of the market with Ad, going back to Abby and she sure. went to Europe and yeah so yeah that. <laughs> so we are celebrating our 20th year it started with Abby Mandel mm-hmm. our founder she had gone to Europe and realized that the food just tasted so much better and when she came back here she realized it was really hard to buy straight from farmers so she went um, begged borrowed and pleaded her case and we started in the alley next to the Chicago theater with Nichols as one of oh, our first farms were, yeah. yeah we were one of the original uh founding uh, farmers that Abby managed to bring in, and uh, we've been there ever since. And how many, so describe what the landscape was like. How many people were there? I mean, how many Um, vendors were there? Going back 20 years ago, it was unbelievably different. Um, I mean, we were stuck in between the Chicago Theater and a Walgreens, just kind of like this hidden little cove where... Only the people that were really out to look for good food were willing to find us. Yeah. Um, and there was probably only maybe a dozen of us farmers from the area that were willing to participate. And uh, it's just been growing ever since. And, I mean, it's definitely been a journey where uh, lots of ups and downs, but... Now we are 20 years later, and uh, hopefully another 20 at least. Your farm is in Marengo? It is. And what do you farm? Uh, We farm fruits and vegetables. Um, We've been uh, farming, actually, for over 40 years now. Uh, My father started uh, the farm back in 1978, and we've been doing farmer's markets ever since. Your father's name? Lloyd Nichols. Lloyd Nichols, and you're second generation. Correct. And what was it like to take that over? Was there, um, was there debate about it? Was it something you really wanted to do? <laughs> it's a family business. Yeah. Let's just say there's always a debate on absolutely everything. Yeah, um, he's still com- he's still involved, uh, not quite so much in day to day operations, but he always likes to stick his nose into just about everything. <laughs> That's so what made you, I mean, uh, how'd you find out about the market here in Chicago? when you? Uh, we've actually ago? been doing mar- farmer's markets ever since 1978. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad had a, this was his part-time job. This was his hobby. And he had a full-time job and he wanted to uh, do a little bit extra. He had a, a little garden in the backyard and he's like, well, I have more produce than my family can consume. So let's do this farmer's market. And so... In 78, he started going to the Evanston Farmer's Market. 
Um, and to this day, we still go there every Saturday, every Saturday morning. We were there this morning and, uh, it's just been a venture where we've started off at one market a week and we've actually grown to now we do like 15 farmers markets a week. Wow. Um, for everybody on the panel, uh, what about your uh, relationship with uh, chefs and uh, buying product and stuff? How has that changed and grown over the years? Um, there was a definitely, what, maybe 10, 15 years ago, there was uh, a little spark where the first fa- or first chefs that uh, came to knowledge that they wanted uh, fresh produce, local, and you're talking about people like uh, oh Michael Garbin, it was at the Union League Club, Rick Bayless at Frontera. Those guys were guys that were or Paul Kahn's another yeah. one that you're looking at 15 years ago 18 20 years ago they came to the farmers markets and they're like wow the quality of the produce is fantastic compared to what I can get in on the commodity market and it's ever it's been growing ever since um I mean and to this day now every every week there's someone else opening up a new restaurant and they're like hey the quality is so much better. Why don't I use this over what I can get from anywhere? Melissa, has it gone hand in hand with such an explosion in, in restaurants in Chicago? Has it gone hand in hand with that? Absolutely. I would say it's been really, um, like you said, hand in hand. Chefs yeah. are more interested in where their food is coming from. And just as important, their guests are more interested in where their food is coming from. They ask questions and people really want to taste the best local produce. And just Thursday, we had our chef barbecue with over 101 chefs cooking for us. So the chefs have been a huge part of the success of Green City Market. We couldn't do it without them. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back and we're going to talk more. I want to talk more about what people can expect when they come to the market and maybe um, things for the future, what people can look at in the future. So don't go away on a Nocturnal Journal on WGN. Sometimes I hang my head and cry When that evening train goes by Wish it could take me far away from these farmers We find any excuse to play Merle Haggard here on the <laughs> Nocturnal Journal. It's Merle Haggard and Marty Stewart, actually. Um, so we're doing a little tribute to the Green City Market, and we have Melissa Flynn, Executive Director of the Green City Market, Nick Nicholas from um, Nick Nichols. Correct. I just yeah. ran over that. Farmer from uh, Marengo, uh, Illinois, and Jackie Jeanette, our friend. Can I call you a farmer? Yeah. Yeah, and co-owner of Bushel and Peck in Beloit. You know, we're talking about all this. I'm rolling through everything uh, so fast. The Green City Market, we should say, is at 1817 North Clark, and it's outdoors. Give us the hours. Uh, outdoor, May to October. Sure. So every Wednesday and Saturday from 7 a.m. to 1 p.m. in our West Loop location at 115 Sangamon um, on Saturdays as well, 8, p- 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. I didn't. So you're in the West Loop. We are. When did you move there? This know. is our seventh year, but really only our third year at the same location. So we're in Mary Bartlemay Park. 
Now, you came from uh, Lincoln Square, Ravenswood. Talk about what you did there. So I was the executive director of the chamber there, and I worked with all independent businesses. I started an evening family or evening farmers market there and a community garden and just got to really know the farmers and love them and see what a difference it makes in the community. Not only does it bring access to great fresh food, but it gives a community gathering space, which is so important. I think even more important these days. Um, so I was talking to a friend today about this segment, and she lives up there, and she, I, she said she's never been to the Green City Market because she goes to the neighborhood markets. Mm-hmm. Is that a common thing, do you think? How many neighborhood markets? I used, to date, I used to date a woman who was involved in the market. <laughs> she moved to uh, some other country. And <laughs> <laughs> they all do. And uh, so I'm not as familiar with the Green City Market as I, as I used to be. But how many like little neighborhood markets are there? At one point, there were 26 neighborhood markets really? um, across Chicagoland. There are a few less these days. And people do really shop what's most convenient for them. Green City Market, people do come as a destination. We have people coming from the Netherlands, from really all over the world, because um, we are a large farmer's market and, sustain- and focus on sustainability. But people want to go where it's convenient. So you get tourist and neighborhood people then? We Is do, that right? absolutely. What did you uh, What did you bring from the Lincoln Square uh, experience into what you do now? Well, farmers are independent businesses, and uh-huh. so really getting an understanding of what we need to do to get people to care about where their food comes from and support an independent business instead of going the easiest route possible. And so trying to bring the focus back that cooking isn't drudgery, that going to a farmer's market is actually a lot of fun. It makes actually shopping a whole lot more fun. And a fun statistic is when you come to a farmer's market, you have 15 to 20 per personal interactions. If you go to the grocery store, you're lucky to have one or two. Yeah, right, right. Um, How many vendors are there now? On Saturdays, we have about 55, and on Wednesdays, we have 30 to 35. And what else can people expect? I mean, there's live music. There's music. Talk about some of the stuff. Sure. So we have music. We have a 5,000-square-foot teaching garden in our Lincoln Park location. We have Club Sprouts, which is a kids' program where kids can come every market day, taste something, get involved with a farm-to-table activity. We have our Ask the Chef tent. Um, Yeah, what happens there? That's kind of new, right? Yeah, it's new this year. And so on Saturdays, you can ask our resident chef, Lisa Kilbacus, if you just went and bought something, um, say you bought kohlrabi and you weren't really sure what to do with kohlrabi you could stop by our s the chef tent and she can help you out how to cook and it how to store it what's her background where she, she um is a chef she trained um right here in chicago and she's worked at a number of restaurants across chicagoland she's awesome and she's also our head educator in our school programs and that's chef in the tent yes mm. oh, that's interesting um <laughs> You talk about uh, one theme that we talk about on and off in the show, and it was a theme of the Supper Club book that I did. Maybe mm-hmm. I remember. Is that. the Butterfly Club still it sure going is, in Beloit? Yep. Sense of place is like a big thing in, in a lot mm-hmm. of stuff I do. So when you talk about sense of place, talk about, and this is again for everybody here, establishing a sense of place. How do you do that? And then how do you define a sense of place? Sure. When you walk into Green City Market, all of a sudden you know where you are. Even if you haven't been there, you feel welcomed. There are people who come every single market day. I bet there's people Nick has seen for 20 years coming to the market. I have people come up to us all the time and say, oh, my kids grew up here. Or I was having a bad day and I knew if I got to market, I would feel better. And so it's sort of this welcoming place where people welcome each other. They look after each other. If a farmer's not there, I guarantee you 30, 40 people will come to the info booth and ask about them. And it's the sights. It's the sounds. It's the kids laughing because we have so many kids running through And then it's the colors, the vibrant colors of all the fruits and vegetables. So you really do feel like you are somewhere um, 
calm and not in the middle of downtown you're, Chicago. You're, you're bringing back all these memories. When I Do you still have dogs? I remember there we used do. to be a lot of dogs. Absolutely. <laughs> we still have dogs. Yeah. Dogs are still okay. Dogs are still okay. <laughs> Nick, talk about some of the interactions you've had with... Uh, with, with it's people. true. I mean, I've been doing this my whole life, and I've seen families where kids were my age at 30, 40 years ago, and now they're bringing their kids and further along. And I mean, there's a day-to-day interaction with so many different people, and it's all walks of life. I mean, you could have a, a doctor, a lawyer, and but at the same time, you could have this a city bus driver or a teacher, and it it's irrelevant to what they do or what everyone's there to really have a good time, get a, some fantastic produce and to be able to eat well. So what questions do they ask you? <laughs> you can't even imagine. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, it's all over the board, but uh, I mean, it's as simple as how do I prepare something or how long will this last in my fridge? Or if I can't get to it right away, but uh I mean, most of these questions are very simple, and I mean, we have a couple guys that work for us, and not that they're chefs or anything, but they're people that enjoy eating every day, and due to that, they they could tell you the simple ways to prepare something, even if it's just dicing it up and throwing it in a salad. You don't need to be some gourmet person. It's simple preparation, quick preparation, uh, and the produce speaks for itself. Um, how old are you? I'm 41. 41. Do you get uh, younger people asking about making this a career? <laughs> Occasionally. Yeah. And they always think that it would be uh, a fan, a fun, fantastic <laughs> thing. Yeah. And I always invite them to be like, hey, you want to come and live my life for a day? And let's see how, uh, how you feel about it after that. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have kids? I do. Uh, is there, are they on the radar for a third generation? Um, she's still awfully young, so yeah. uh, we'll see. Yeah. Now, when we talked the first time, Rich, your partner, he said farming was harder than running in the Chicago Marathon. I think it is. I and think elaborate on that. Yeah, so I think people think of farming maybe as being sort of dreamy and <laughs> fun and running around in pastures with <laughs> little <laughs> lambs and petting them. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's a it's a very labor intensive job and there there isn't a whole lot of money to be made in that um at least for at least for a while when you start out, but it's um it's a very difficult career to take on if if you're really trying to earn a living doing it. It's definitely possible to do it, but it's it's not it's it's a business just like anything else that you would do. And when you become a farmer, you're really running your own business and you're 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 out in the field all the time being hot, being cold, whatever it whatever it takes to get the job done. And why did you decide to do it? Um I wanted to be outside mostly. I yeah. I, I really have always been interested in agriculture and horticulture in particular and um, it, I wanted to get out of the office and out of that environment and, and into nature a little bit more than what I was doing. So it was important for me to just get out of the city and go do something different. You started, uh, this is my notes from when we first talked back in 2010 or 2009, but sheep, chickens, turkeys, and you sold through the first uh, meat CSA in right. Chicago. And talk about community-supported agriculture. Yeah, so community-supported excuse me community supported yeah. agriculture is a way of supporting a farm by buying a share in that farm so you might subscribe to a farm 
um, and they would give you a box of produce each week that varied with the season. Um, you would get that for either each week or every other week. And in doing that, you're supporting that farm in advance of the growing season. So they're getting a little bit of money earlier than they normally would. Um, that's a model that a lot of farms start out with. That's how we started out. And ultimately, we grew away from that. But there's several hundred CSA farms that you can choose from in the Chicago area. Uh, Nick, for example, <laughs> here has a CSA. Really? Yeah, we do. And uh, even for us, I mean, we're a relatively large farm for what we do. But, I mean, a CSA helps out so much because, I mean, we're all the cash goes out right at the beginning. You're paying for seed, labor, everything. And it takes time for produce to grow. And people don't always realize that it takes an unbelievable investment up front. And then it takes three, four months before that investment starts coming in. And uh, it's not always the easiest. We got to take a break. But um, are you worried about suburban sprawl? I mean, Marengo, I start thinking about stuff getting built up out there. and We're right about at the edge yeah. of it. Yeah. It makes it for a little bit shorter commute, yeah. but uh, <laughs> but, but uh, it's gradually working its way that way. How many acres do you guys have? Uh, we farm just over 400. 400 acres. Okay. All right. Don't go away. We're going to talk more about the Green City Market on WGN. Hoping this good food fills ya. Work my hands to the bone in the kitchen alone. You better eat if it kills you. Pass me a pancake, man, drink. Have an undervy, Welcome back to Nocturnal Journal, and we're paying tribute to the 20th anniversary of the Green City Market. And we have Melissa Flynn, Executive Director of the Green City Market. Nick Nichols, longtime farmer with the yeah. market from Marengo, Illinois, and our friend Jackie Jeanette farmer and co-owner of Bushel and Peck and Beloit. How can people find You've been on the show before on the radio. I mean, on the phone. Yep, I yeah. have. Back, uh, in, back, I think, in your first show I was. <laughs> <laughs> what progress we've made. Um, talk about Bushel and Peck. I mean, you got events coming up. Yeah, uh, so uh, Bushel and Peck's is, is, again, it's a store and a restaurant. Yeah. Uh, we also do a lot of online sales, so if you want to find our products, which are delicious, you can get them at our website, which is www.bushelandpecks.com or if you want to make a day trip, you can come up to Beloit, maybe even on a Saturday. We also have a great farmer's market there that goes from eight to one on Saturdays in Beloit, Wisconsin. And there's a lot of fun things to do in the town too. So it's, you go see the snappers. You can go see the snappers, yeah. that's right. You can see some, some baseball. Yeah, right. But uh, it's, it's a great place and it's a great day trip if you wanna come and explore our shop and explore the rest of our community. You do a lot of garlic, right? Is yeah, that you think? Talk about your garlic. Uh, that's a fun thing for me. I don't know why I'm slightly obsessed with it, but we do <laughs> we do grow a fair bit of garlic on our farm. Uh, started out with 50 pounds about 12 years ago, and you know we'll grow anywhere from 3,000 to 7,000 pounds a year, depending on how good the, the crop is. But we'll be pulling that out of the ground next week, actually. Next week, actually. Yep. I've always so what you I've always thought about this actually a lot since I met you. I mean, what's your relationship with the market? Do you drive down a lot uh, from from Beloit yeah, to the market? Yeah, we, how often do you? We, show? Uh, I personally try to come to the market once about every other week. I, we have people that come in from Beloit on Wednesdays and on Saturdays. So we're we're just driving basically all the time. <laughs> but uh but you know there's a there's a big market here in Chicago that doesn't exist 
in rural Wisconsin. So a lot of farmers commute from a long way at very early hours of the morning to get to markets. And that's just what you do if you want to connect with the larger communities. Melissa, we were talking during the break. It, it, you said it costs money to get good food. So elaborate on what you mean by that. Sure, it does. Um, how Jackie and Nicole, Nick are saying that there's so much time and energy that goes into producing great food. Um, you start planting garlic, for example, in the fall. She won't pull it out of the ground till next week. So that is a long time from when you purchase those seeds of caring for it, of getting the garlic scapes and the green garlic and bring it all the way to when you have to cure it and then get it to market. So there's a lot that goes into growing food the right way so that you get the best, freshest food possible. And while she talks about farmers coming a long distance, the average distance to market is about 135 miles. At a grocery store, the average distance is about 1,500 miles. And the more your food travels, the less nutritious it is it loses nutrients each and every day so again while that's a long thing to do in one day you're still getting incredibly fresh food that was picked the day before and mostly hand-picked so these farmers are it really is the toughest job you will ever love (laughs) (laughs) is that true nick it is it's uh it's an all-day 24-hour adventure really and because i mean you're dealing with the weather you're dealing with insects you're dealing with everything that you can ever imagine and I mean, we start early and on a day like today where it was 100 degrees out, we had people that showed up to work at uh, four, three, four o'clock in the morning. So you could try to get out into the fields a little bit earlier where it's a little cooler. So it wasn't uh, even worse than it could be. Yeah. Um, we've got Farm Aid coming up uh, on September 21st and uh, it's up in... Uh Alpine Valley. Alpine Valley, mm-hmm. yeah, up in Alpine Valley. And Ben, I covered the first one in 85 in uh, Champaign. What's the climate like? I mean, uh, you know, uh, Willie and everybody, they'll be talking about the struggles of the farmers. Uh, is it, what's it like right now? This year is going to be, it's definitely going to be a struggle. Um, the weather and the- I mean, everything was really late yeah. being planted because of uh, being really cool to begin with. And right. then we had tons of rain. And now all of a sudden it's a heat wave. Yeah. It's, <laughs> Literally one thing after another. Um, you just grin and bear it. I mean, what do you do? You get out there, you do what you can. You have no other choice. It's not like, oh, I'm just going to wait a couple months and take care of it. No, you don't have that. You literally have no choice. If you want to get something planted and you want to try to make a little bit of money and revenue off of it, you go out no matter what the condition is. It's interesting. What about methods like your dad used as opposed to, I mean, you guys, is your generation more into computers and gadgets and stuff than your father was? And My dad doesn't know what a computer is. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> so how does that play into what the next generation of farmers are? Um, it's a challenge yeah. because especially in our, in our business, um, trying to transition from how my dad wants right. to run something to how we do, there's a challenge and a learning process and everything. The younger the generation, the more they want to use computers. And my dad's the type that he wants a pencil with an eraser and a notebook. (laughs) And that's how he wants it. And he still feels like he's involved and he wants to be involved. But at the same time, it's like, well, we need to try to advertise on the Internet. We need to try to do this. And it's harder for the older generation to transition to what's going on nowadays. But you've done that. I'm trying yeah, to, you're trying to, yeah, yeah, always. He's being modest too because his farm is doing amazing things with solar panels, yeah, okay, with geothermal. Yeah. My my dad is, was one of these people who really wanted to take care of everything, and 
about six, seven years ago, we put up a new building and expanded a little bit. And his number one concern was he wanted to beat me zero footprint on the earth. So he put in solar panels and geothermal and wind power with turbines and all this unbelievable expense for what it was, but he wanted to do it right. Wow. And he probably won't ever see the the payoff in the, but he was looking for my generation or my our kids generations he wanted to do it right wow that's and, great yeah it's, is that common to have that type of foresight I don't know how common it is, but we are seeing a lot of it with the farmers that come to our market because, of course, they're farmers that already care about sustainability. So doing more geothermal, doing more solar panels, understanding um, regeneration of soil, and really thinking how they can leave things better than they found it. So we do see that quite a bit with our farmers. Yeah. Um, Talk about some of the future plans for the market. Sure. It's the 20th anniversary. What what can we expect in the next 20 years? Well, (laughs) um, so our mission is farmers, education, and access. So Mm -hmm. we are always trying to come up with new opportunities for our farmers. We are always working with our chefs to make it even easier for them to order from our farmers. We accept food stamps, Link, in Illinois, and we match dollar for dollar up to $15 per market day, and that program is continuing to grow. Last year, it was over $27,000 back in our farmers' pockets and $27,000 of food on people's table. And what we know is we need to get the next generation of eaters involved, so we're teaching in schools. And we started with about 15 kids two years ago. We'll have over 420 kids this year. So Now, how does that work? I mean, what <laughs> schools and what do you teach? Sure. So we're teaching edible education based off of Alice Waters, who's oh, sort of yeah. you know, the premier farm-to-table um, chef off of her program um, out in Berkeley. And we are teaching from third grade all the way through seniors in high school at Von Linnea Elementary School and then DePaul College Prep. And we're teaching everything from nutrition, basic cooking skills, how to read a label, food justice, um, really making sure kids feel empowered and know how to nourish themselves for a lifetime to come. And the kids love it and they are so smart they ask really good questions we made potato soup with them and then we brought in a can of soup and they're like why are there so many ingredients we used four so they just intrinsically get it and it's awesome would you say like 26 neighborhood uh markets Mm -hmm. there were it's like i said dwindling just a little bit what about like the west side and the south side how represented are they so they aren't terribly represented and that's something the city takes very seriously and is always working with and then with us we know that it's really hard to get in neighborhoods um, and bring a farmers market because there is a lot of it's really a risk for the farmers so some of the things we're doing is pairing access programs with our school programs so we're teaching the kids um, edible education during the day and then their families and the staff can order food from our farmers we'll accept a match link and we bring it right to school so that we take away that access barrier wow (laughs) thank you guys we're out of time. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Good. I gotta come and come back to the market. Please I'll bring do. my camper van. What's the parking like there? Is it, we have well, we have free parking for chefs, and yeah. then we do validate parking at the nature yeah. or the history museum. And at uh, 1817 North Clark, south end of Lincoln yes. Park. All right, before we sign off, uh, wrap around, we'll go around the table and how people can get in touch with you if they have other questions, they want to learn more about you, Jackie. So you can reach uh, me at our, our, our Bushland Pecks at service at bushlandpecks.com or call us at 608 363 3911. 
Well, that's nice. You give your phone number out. That's yeah, why not? Very, very, I, don't, very I think small people town. still use phones. <laughs> yeah. You don't ever know who's listening on a Saturday, lonely Saturday night. <laughs> <laughs> Melissa? You can find us at greencitymarket.org. Okay. And uh, definitely j- check out our website at nicholsfarm.com. Thanks so much for joining us, you guys. And, thank uh, you. Thank you for listening to Nocturnal Journal, and we'll be back soon on WGN.